Lord, we anticipate that day. The day where faith will become sight, where we will see our Savior face to face. And as the Apostle John says in chapter 2, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And then he goes on to describe that when we see you, we will become like you, because we will see you as you are. We anticipate that day. We look forward to that day. And in the moment, in this day, Lord, we pray that you would continue that work that you started on the day that you brought us into relationship with you. We think of the promise that Paul talks about in Philippians 1.6, where he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So you are seeking to fashion Christ in us now. It won't be realized until we see you face to face, but, but in this day and in the days between the here and the then, God, do that work, accomplish that work for us for your glory, for your renown, for the maximizing of gospel testimony, for the vivid picture of Jesus in our world, wherever we are, may people see Christ. Go before us this morning as we look into the word. Encourage us as we think about your sovereignty in the midst of suffering. May we anchor our hope in the confidence that you are in control, that nothing happens to us that you have not allowed. May we see Jesus in this passage, and may people see Jesus in us, we pray in your name. Amen. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you or ask if you would pray for uh, Pastor David and I uh, Pastor David is going to be going on a, on a trip October 17th to the 21st. It's a missions conference that he's going to be helping to, to preach at in Florida. Be praying for him as he prepares. Be praying for him as he uh, shares his heart in the word of God with the people there in Florida. And then uh, I have an opportunity uh, along with Alex Kistler. Alex, where are you? Where are you? He's out in the back. Okay, there he is right there. Alex Kistler and I are going to Russia at the end of October. I just want to let you guys know, please be praying for us as we prepare. Uh, we're looking forward to being able to teach the Word of God and, and to equip and to train some Christian leaders, uh, between 15 and 20 of them. And there, of course, are costs for travel, but also cost of the module. In order to provide this, because of the translation efforts that happen because of the food and utilities expenses of the, of the place where we'll be having this training. There are costs associated with that. And if you uh, are feeling led by the Lord to contribute to that, of course, that would be a blessing to us and also an encouragement to brothers and sisters on the other side of the planet. So be praying for us as we prepare. There's lots to do, uh, lots of lessons to get ready. We'll be teaching the major prophets in Christian disciplines. So I'm excited and uh, glad to have a, uh, a partner to go along with. So um, it'll be a, a great opportunity.
This morning we're going to be continuing our study in 1 Peter. Uh, this morning we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Uh, here we are uh, in September, and finally we're going to be turning the page. We've been on pages uh, 1014 and 1015 for the first nine months of our time in 1 Peter, and now we get to turn the page to 1016 if you're using the Pew Bible and just taking our time as we've been looking at the Word of God together. In preparation for our study, I, I want to just, I want to let you know that the themes that we're going to be looking at this morning are the themes that, that, that are true all the way from the start of the Bible to the end of the Bible. That, that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy, that God is sovereign. We see that at the beginning in Genesis, we'll see that at the very end in Revelation, and we'll see that until the day that Jesus comes back. We'll be able to experience that together. We see that show up really predominantly, in my mind, in the story of Joseph. I, I love the story of Joseph. And many of you, probably kids, have seen that movie. Was it called Joseph something of dreams? King of dreams? Thank you for the help out there. Joseph, king of dreams. Now, so, so Joseph, as you know, he grows up in this family, and, and he's child number what? Child number 11, right? Child number 11, there are 12 kids. Now, <clears throat> what do we know about Joseph's family? What do we know about being child number 11? What did his brothers think of Joseph, guys? What did, Joseph, what did Joseph's brothers think? What's that? They hated him. Okay, now, they hated him for several reasons. One, because when you're child number 11... You're not the preferred son. But for whatever reason, and it had a lot to do with the fact that he was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Okay? So even though he was child number 11, he was his dad's favorite. Now how did, kids, how did, how did his dad show favoritism to Joseph? What, what did he do? What's that? Gave him a coat, a coat of many colors. This preferred status, you're my favorite, and I'm going to show you off to the world. Not just the family. The family knows it already, but now as, as we're parading you around the community, all the community knows it too. So every time the family is walking together out in public, all the older brothers are shamed by younger brother Joseph. That's, that, doesn't, that doesn't go well when you're trying to have good family dynamics. Now, what added insult to injury was not only was he a favorite and preferred son of his father, Joseph, but he seemed to get some extra perks and favoritism from God, too. How did God show favoritism to Joseph? Dreams. And God showed him dreams, not just once, but twice. And what do those dreams say? Remember what happened in those dreams? What's that? You're going to be the ruler. Here are those, those sheaves of wheat that are bowing down to Joseph. Here are the sun and the moon and the stars that are bowing down to Joseph. And God is showing Joseph the favored status that he has in the family. Well, so things didn't really go very well for Joseph, did they? 
What do, what do his brothers end up doing to Joseph? What's that? They sold him into slavery, right? That doesn't seem like something that should happen to a person who is following after God, who is preferred by God, but he is sold into slavery. Sold into slavery, and the first assignment was Potiphar's house. And in that narrative, this happens to be in Genesis 37, it says on at least two occasions that the hand of the Lord was on Joseph for good, prospered him, showed strength to Joseph, and, and prospered all the works of his hands. This favored status continues to show up in his life. But what does this favored status lead to in Joseph's life there in Potiphar's house? Remember what happens between Potiphar's wife and Joseph, and Joseph's integrity, and he's zealous for righteousness, and what happens even though he's zealous for righteousness. He's got to go to prison. He goes to prison. So he takes another step down. He's sold out of his family. He's sold as a slave to Potiphar's house. He's serving in Potiphar's house, and things get actually worse for Joseph, and now he's got to go to prison. But God has something in mind there in prison. God brings two different people from Pharaoh's household, the, the cupbearer, and the baker, and they have dreams, and Joseph interprets these dreams. God uses Joseph's ability to interpret dreams to, to, to help the cupbearer know that two years down the road, when Pharaoh has a dream, somebody can answer. And God uses that. Joseph is able to interpret the dream. God elevates Joseph in the, in the entire kingdom to number two status, and puts him exactly where he wants him to be. Now, <laughs> Joseph's brothers show up. Now, they don't know, know who they're standing in front of, but Joseph recognizes them, doesn't he? Joseph recognizes them, and finally he reveals this great reveal, as it were. Joseph reveals the fact that he is their brother, Joseph, whom they sold into slavery, and they are terrified. We pick up that part of the story in Genesis chapter 45, verses 5 to 8. It says, Joseph is speaking to his brothers. He says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest. And notice this. And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over the lands of Egypt. Who was responsible for getting Joseph to Egypt? God was. Who was responsible for all of the hardship that Joseph experienced while he was in Egypt? God was. And who was responsible for putting Joseph in just the place he wanted him to be, to accomplish just the purpose he wanted him to accomplish, and that it could not have happened any other way, according to God's plan and purpose? 
so that at the end of Joseph's life, when Jacob dies, now his brothers are getting a little terrified again because now that Jacob is out of the way, Joseph can do what he's going to do without any, um, any shame or accountability from daddy. And so in Genesis chapter 15, or 50, at the very end of the book, we find this narrative. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they send a representative, they ask for forgiveness, they, they plead for their life, plead for mercy. Jace, uh, Joseph hears their pleas for mercy. He weeps and says this in response, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is sovereign over your suffering. That's the message. We could go home right now. Because the, the, the theme, the anthem of, of this message, the anthem of this text, is the anthem from the beginning of creation to the end of eternity, and that God is sovereign. And as long as we are here on this earth, He is sovereign over your suffering. And I don't want to diminish the pain that many of you have experienced and are currently experiencing. I don't want to seek to erase any of the heartache, any of the, of the difficulties that you're going through. I don't want to say that it doesn't matter. I don't want to say that God doesn't care. I, I want you to, to recognize that there is a God of compassion who cares about your weaknesses. But that same God is the God who is sovereign over your hardship. He's sovereign over your suffering. And we're going to see from our passage today that he has a purpose for it. He has good purposes for your suffering. I wonder if at age 17, when God was revealing these dreams to Joseph, I wonder if God pulled back the curtain for Joseph and said, hey, Joseph, by the way, here's what I'm going to accomplish through your life. I'm, I'm going to, even through hard things, I'm going to make you a person who is able to, to be an interpreter of dreams. And you're not going to be able to do that unless you're in prison. And I'm going to use suffering to refine your faith so that you know that righteousness is something you should pursue even when it doesn't seem like it's beneficial to you. And Joseph, through suffering, I'm going to elevate you to the second greatest person in the world. And I'm going to use you not only to preserve a nation, I'm going to use your testimony of faith as a legacy for everyone who's coming after you. They're going to read about what, what I did through your life, and they're going to celebrate faith and the sovereignty of God through your life and through your example. If God had done that for Joseph, do you think he would have been willing to walk through? If God would do that for you before you experience suffering, like if God were to show you what he intends to accomplish in your life and in the lives of the people around you as a result of the hard things that you're going through, that this is going to be tough, but, but you know that person in your family that you love? I'm going to save their soul. 
because of your suffering. They're going to see the gospel in you and they're going to come to Jesus because of your willingness to suffer. Or if, they, if you got to know the encouragement that you would be to people around you and the, the inspiration to faith, the, the way that God might use you to, to redirect history in the future because of, of your example of, of faith in God. If, if you knew what God was going to do through your suffering, would you be more inclined more willing to press in and to let God do what he would do? I imagine you would. Let me read this passage for us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. This is the promise that we need to cling to so that we know that whatever God will do, it will be good. And whatever God will do through suffering, it is by design. And whatever God will accomplish, He must do through the channel, the pathway of hard things for you. It's the only way for people to see Jesus is when they see suffering. Suffering for righteousness sake. It says this, verses 13 to 17. Now who is He who will harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. My goal this morning is a simple one. I really only have two main points and then a response. The two main points are under this heading, God is sovereign over your suffering. And in this text today, we're going to see two ways in which God is sovereign. And in His sovereignty, He has good intentions for you. What would change if we believed this? What would change if we believed that suffering, according to the will of God, was proportional to your usefulness? Meaning, the degree to which you suffer is the degree to which God can use you in this world to accomplish His purposes. Would you be willing to invite suffering for the sake of being useful for God? Well, last week we concluded with chapter 3, verse 12. It says this, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And now the, perhaps the question that would be on the minds of the people, the audience who are reading and listening, is in verse 13. Now who is there who will harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If there is a God who hears your prayers, a God whose face is against those who are evil, then, then, then who can harm you? No one can touch you without God's permission. That's our first point. God grants permission before you suffer. God grants permission before you suffer. Who is there who will harm you if you are zealous for what is good. This word harm is the word for evil, the word to injure, the word for hurt or mistreatment. Basically, it's any kind of evil that can come against you, whether it's physical 
or emotional, financial, uh, your reputation, you fill in the blank. Any evil that can come against you is what is in mind here. Peter wants you to know you are protected against every harm unless God gives permission. You are protected against every harm unless God gives permission. Now, that goes for the little things, like when someone steals your spot, uh, you want to park at the grocery store. I mean, that's real suffering, right? Or, or someone takes that last roll of toilet paper. I mean, there's real suffering that takes place there. Those are the little things. But there are some big hurts that are represented in, in, in this room today. There are hurts of those who have lost loved ones recently. There are hurts of broken relationships. There are hurts of those who, who are struggling to make ends meet financially. There, there are the hurts of those in this room who have gotten some really dire news in terms of diagnosis, health issues that you are walking through. I want you to recognize, and Peter wants you to know from this passage, whatever the hurt, whatever the suffering, whatever the, the trial that you're going through, you cannot experience trial unless God says yes. Unless God says, I permit this to happen. Imagine the one who created the world is standing in the gap. He's standing between you and wickedness. And nothing can get to you through him unless he permits it to get, to get through. And he only does it in a way that is measured. He only does it in a way when he realizes that it is necessary. We saw that at the beginning of our, of our, of our time together in 1 Peter, where Peter says in chapter 1, I think it's uh, verse uh, verse seven in, or 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. You will only experience suffering if God deems it necessary. So God must grant permission. And no harm can touch you. No harm can touch you unless God grants permission. And no harm can touch you if, this next phrase in verse 13, you are zealous for what is good. Who is there who will harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, let's be honest. Uh, there is some suffering that is self-induced, right? There is some suffering that comes as a result of bad decisions, with bad relationships that come as a result of being uh, a part of, of rebellion or sin in your life. And, and, and so there are consequences that come. This is not what Peter is talking about. God does permit that kind of suffering too, but that is something that he does for a different reason. He does that to correct you and to, and to sanctify you and to help you be more like him. But, but this kind of suffering is to showcase Jesus, to spotlight Christ. So if you're zealous for what is good and suffer, God may permit suffering to happen for the sake of showing Christ through your life. Peter has said already in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this 
is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And we said, when you do good and suffer, this is grace. Because this is when the grace of God, the presence of God, the power of God comes through the Spirit to you to strengthen you, to help you, to help carry you through whatever hard things you're experiencing and to point and spotlight Jesus through your life. This word zealous is the word zealot or enthusiast or someone who's an adherent. This is not random zeal. This is zeal that is directed in a particular way, directed towards righteousness. Paul talks about this kind of zeal in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 or 14, when he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about zealous for righteousness. And when you suffer by pursuing Christ and you're doing good, then suffering becomes necessary and appropriate. It spotlights Jesus. So why? Why is there suffering then? If, if no harm can come to you when you're doing what is good, you're zealous for what is good, then, then why is there suffering at all? And for that answer, we, we jump down to verse 17. The answer is there. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So no harm can touch you if you are zealous for what is good, unless it is God's will. What does that mean? It means that when you suffer in this life, it is God's will. It's not by accident. It's not, God is not losing control. Suffering only happens according to the will of God, because God is sovereign over your suffering. No one can touch you. No one can harm you. No one can work evil against you unless God decides it's necessary. And then trials that are appointed by him, they don't happen by accident. They're custom-made. It's not a one-size-fits-all, but they've been carefully crafted. They have a specific start date and a specific end date, and God determines when the finish time is. At every point along the way, God is actively involved in the process. Does that encourage you to know that God is sovereign over your suffering? Does it encourage you to know that, that it is God's will for you to suffer and that's when it happens? It happens only by permission of God? Can you think of some examples in the Bible where God grants permission for suffering? Yeah, I hear it, Job. What a great example that is. Where, where God pulls back the veil and we, we get to see this, this scene in heaven, right? We, we get to see this conversation taking place. This conversation between, between God and Satan. And God says, hey, hey, have you considered my, my boy Job down there? He, he is blameless in all of his ways. I mean, he's got it going on. I'm sure he didn't say that that way. but God identifies a man who is zealous for righteousness. And Satan's response, remember what that was? Well, of course, things are going really well for him. You take that stuff away, then he's still going to have a different response. 
you, know, you, you take away all of his good stuff, then, then maybe we'll see how he really feels about you. And so God says, okay, you have my permission to do this, except with one exception, you may not touch his life. So Satan takes away his, his finances, he takes away his crops, he takes away his livestock and his camels, and I forget what all the other things that, that happened to, to Job. And, and finally, God takes, or Satan takes away his family, his sons and daughters. Devastating. In Job's response, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan's like, okay, whoa, 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 wait. I tell you what, um, one more thing, God. I, how about you let me touch his body? I won't take away his life. Okay, that's fine. You got my permission. So Satan gives him boils, right? And he is in torment. Suffering only happens by the permission of God. We find a confirmation of that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works just a few things according to the counsel of his will. Or most things according to the counsel of his will. No, all things. Every single thing without exception according to the purpose of his will. Your suffering is under the sovereign hand of God. He permits it. He wills it. And, as we're going to see next, he has a purpose for it. He has a purpose for your suffering. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake. He has a divine purpose for your suffering. Notice we see that in verse 15 and 16. It says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That there are two purposes here. One we see in verse 15, and one we're going to get to in a, actually, I guess there are three purposes. Uh, one, uh, we'll get to them as we go, okay? The first is honor Christ as holy. And I'm just going to call that worship, to lead you to greater worship. God desires your worship, He wants you to enjoy him to the full. And you can only do that when other distractions, other uh, satisfactions, other delights are taken out of the way and all you're left with is God. And, and God will do that in the right time, in the right way, but that is God's goal, to make himself enough for you in every way, to lead you to greater worship. So your life is a living expression of what we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 where Paul says, I, I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. God's purpose for you as a believer is to worship him. This word, uh, the New King James says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This is the same word that that Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer, where he says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the word. The word is to hallow, to set apart. 
to, to revere as, as being holy, to, to recognize and to worship in a way that draws attention to the, the, to the character of God. That is the goal that God has for every person who loves Jesus in this room is to wake up every morning and to spend every waking moment of the day hallowing Christ, sanctifying Christ, setting Christ apart in your hearts, making Him the Lord of your life, recognizing that He is sovereign, that He is authority, recognizing that He is creator and your creature, recognizing that He is king and your subject, recognizing that He is sovereign and that you are to be carrying out as subject the things that he has called you to do. That, that, he, that uh, we exist for him. He doesn't exist for us. So often we get that turned upside down. I think this also means as we are hallowing Christ in our hearts, sanctifying Christ, worshiping Christ in our hearts, we, we come to the place of recognizing that he's holy. We say, God, this feels so unfair. I'm, I have an impulse to be angry right now. I have an impulse to accuse you of not doing what is right here. But I know that you're holy. And I'm embracing the fact that you, are, that you are seeing everything that's happening and you are letting good things happen even when it feels very wrong. When believers sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts, they affirm their submission to his control. They set him apart. By the way, the greatest injustice in history that happened, what was that greatest injustice that happened in history? Jesus dying on the cross led to the greatest holy purposes that God had for, the, for all of humanity, for all of time. Whatever injustice you think you're feeling, settle your hearts in a holy God who intends good things for you. He is a holy God lead, to lead you to greater worship. In verse 15, we also see to fill you with greater hope. To fill you with greater hope, notice what it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness in respect. Interestingly, Peter uses this word hope instead of faith. They're not asking so much about the faith that they see. They, they do see faith, but, but faith and hope kind of go hand in hand. They're, they're used interchangeably throughout the letter of First Peter. Chapter 1, verse 21 gives us a good example. It says, "...who through him are believers in God." who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Hope in God is his ultimate objective for you. Faith in God. The just will live by faith. And it shows up in our, in our dependence and reliance on him, hoping in him completely and not hoping in the things of this life. It's the only thing that's going to carry a group of people, this church, when they're facing and encountering an unjust authority, who've confiscated their property, who've pushed them out of their own lands, who've taken away their belongings, who've separated their families and their friends, 
and yet there's still submission to that kind of injustice, you can only do that if you hope in God. Or your submission to unjust employers. Those who are beating you for doing good. The only way to do that is if you hope in God. And, and when we do this, we follow in Christ's steps. When we do this and we're reviled and do not revile in return, people see Jesus. When God removes all of the safety nets and all of the things we would depend on in this life and all we're left with is hope in God as we see in chapter 1 verse 13 set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ you have your eyes that are fixed on eternity on heaven on God your hope is there and not in this life then people see God and people get to experience the benefits of your suffering And then we see as well in verses 15 and 16 to make you a greater witness. To make you a greater witness. Being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. As we've been walking through these last several verses, beginning in verse 21, where we talked, to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you. You've been called to suffering for the sake of showing Christ in and through your life. And so when you are reviled and don't revile in return, when you anchor your confidence in the coming of Christ and your hope is not in this life, And when you have a good conscience, even when you're slandered for doing good, your your hope and identity is found in God's perspective of you, then you point to the gospel. The gospel shines through your life. When you do this, God is pleased. This is how we can maximize our suffering for the sake of the gospel. Think about why God has called us to this earth. Why God has called us to salvation. And and I believe it's probably the desire of everybody in this room to be used of God in some way to to, to call people into relationship with Jesus. I I think that is what your your desire is. But from this passage, we see that the, the best in greatest and fullest way that this happens is as when you go through suffering and you do it in, in terms of righteousness, Jesus Christ and the gospel shows up in your life. We do it for the sake of a greater witness. Finally, what is our response? We find the response to suffering and the sovereignty of God in verse 14. Here's what it says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. I think Peter is trying to help us understand that we need to recognize the privilege of our suffering. Did you you hear that? Recognize the, the privilege of your suffering? How can it be a privilege? Well, Peter says 
that it is a privilege because you will be blessed. And, and what he uses here in this word to suffer, this verb to suffer, is called an optative. And, and all that means is Peter is setting up a hypothetical situation, not of something that might happen in the future, but when it does, you will be blessed. I prefer the New King James's translation. It says, you are blessed. Meaning, we're not just looking to some future day, some future time in heaven when blessing will come. We can experience God's blessing in the moment. And we can experience that because of what we find in chapter 4, verse 14. Look at that with me for a moment. The exact same word is used. Blessed is found here. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, chapter 4, verse 14, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You can take comfort in knowing that you're not being punished for some sort of sin that's in your life, that suffering is coming and, and God's just giving you the, the backhand because he's, he's trying to, to get you to be disciplined for righteousness sake. You can rest assured that in your suffering, you are actually suffering in a way that is bringing blessing to your life. You are blessed as a result of suffering because you are showing Christ through your life. In the the presence and the power of the Spirit rests upon you to carry you through everything that you're going to experience. Not only will you be able to be blessed, finally we see in verse 14, you can have freedom from fear. It says, have no fear of them or be troubled. I love how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 41.10. He says, fear not for I am with you be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That in the midst of suffering, in the hard things that you experience, you don't have to worry about the people who are coming against you because God's going to make sure that that's not going to happen any more than you can endure, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right? No temptation has overtaken you that God won't provide a way of escape. But in your suffering, you show Christ in the most vivid way possible. How will people know what faith is unless they see faith in your life? They see faith in the midst of hard things. How will people know what hope is if all your hope is here on earth and it looks just like the hope of the person living next door to you or the person in the cubicle across from you, how will people know what delight in God looks like if you're not finding your satisfaction in Him rather than your satisfaction in your cars, in your stuff, in your home, and, and all the, the good things that you have? How will people know Christ? if they don't see Christ in your life, the way you respond to others in the midst of hard things, that, that when beaten for doing good or reviled for doing good or slandered for doing good, that, that in your mouth and coming from your lips is blessing because you trust God. Suffering is a way to showcase the gospel. 
Suffering is our opportunity. When we're suffering for righteousness' sake, to, to avoid fear. Because when we're in the midst of suffering, we can look to the promises of God to realize that he is with us. He's strengthening us. He's helping us. He's upholding us. He's with us. May God help us this week in whatever suffering or difficulty you might be experiencing to recognize that God is the one who is sovereign over your suffering. And as you come to that, realize that he is seeking to work his purposes through your life and accomplish those purposes as you submit to him in the midst of your suffering. Let's pray. God, thank you for this encouragement this morning. The encouragement that nothing happens to us that you do not permit. No harm can touch us unless it is harm that you allow, but you only allow harm to happen when it's accomplishing the purpose of worship in us, accomplishing the purpose of hope in us, and it's amplifying the testimony of God in us. As we saw last week, that our life can be a window to glory. May that be true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning. Thanks for coming. Thank you.